For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, visit a gathering for Arizona residents aged 99 years and older. Learn about SAGA, the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance. Film writer Chris DeShiel listens to the music that plays an important role in three cinema classics. And find out why historian, artist, and True West magazine publisher Bob Bowes Bell says that nothing changes more than the past. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Around the world, the number of people who live to age 100 or more is growing, but it's still rare. Census data says that there are more than 40 million Americans over the age of 65, but fewer than 65,000 are centenarians. Every year, the Pima Council on Aging presents a tribute to the eldest members of our community, and the 28th gathering was held last week at Tucson Medical Center. There were approximately 40 people there, aged 99 or more, accompanied by family, friends, and caregivers. I spoke to a few of them about their remarkable lives. Hi, what's your name? Cecilia Shrevey. And why are you here today? Because I'm going to be 102. (laughs) How does that feel? I never thought I'd get that far. Because I come from a family of nine. And I'm the only one left. I'm lucky enough, I have five generations. So you have quite a legacy. Yeah. I'm the only one in the family that reached the five generations. Yeah. Do people ask you if there's a secret? Yeah, they always ask, what's the secret? Eating what I like and enjoying what I like. And listening to news. That helps. Oh, yeah. That raises my blood pressure. <laughs> Some of mine, too. Yeah. yeah. Is the past important to you? Do, you? do you spend a lot of time thinking about the past? Not a lot, but I enjoyed my childhood. And I think of when I lived on a farm and what I did and whatever I did, because my dad only had two boys. So we we took the place of the boy to help him. So you had to do your share of chores. Yeah. Yeah. I milked cows and I helped in the hay fields. And my older two-year-old sister, older than I, we drove one of the wagons because my dad was our milk delivery. He delivered it. Where was this? What state? Of Wisconsin. And Lowell, Wisconsin, that's where I was born. I'm Janet Schlesinger. And what uh, what earned you a, a seat in the room today? Well, I'll be 100 if I make it, uh, December 20th. And uh, frankly, I'm surprised that I'm still here. <laughs> and are you from Tucson? Are you from Arizona? Well, I've been here for 56 years, so I guess I am from Tucson. Do you think about the past a lot? Is it important to yes. you? Yes. 
I think about it a great deal recently, particularly. And, and tell us what that's like. Why do you think you do that? I don't know. Different people come to my mind, different events, and some, of course, are very happy events, and that's what I hope to concentrate on. What kind of a family do you have now? I have one daughter and a granddaughter in Tucson. I have one daughter living in Fountain Hills. I did have two sons, but unfortunately, they're both gone. When we first sat down, your friend said, this is one sharp lady. Yes. So, how old do you feel up here? I really don't associate myself with any particular age. Now, what do you want to know? Who, who are you? Introduce yourself. I am Curtis Spencer B. Ellen. How old are you, sir? 99, the last 2nd of April. <laughs> well, you're, you're just a kid in this crowd, then. Oh, yeah. You're one of the youngsters. Yeah. Why are you wearing a conductor's hat today? Well, I work for the railroad as a brakeman and a conductor. Was that a good line of work for you? Well, that was a pretty good line of work. Yeah, I got a good pension, and uh, I get hurt in any accident. It's covered. How'd you end up in Arizona? Well, we've got two sons. This is oldest one is Andrew. He's 70, what, four? Six. <laughs> 76. Whoa. He's he catching up to you. He and his wife live in Salt Lake City. And you see, he is a doctor of philosophy. He studied for years. Did you approve of that, uh, that field, of him yeah. going into philosophy? Oh, yeah. He studied for years with a Jesuit. You understood. I didn't want to work on a railroad. <laughs> no way. I'm Geneva Patterson. And why are you here today? I'm here to celebrate my fourth time for the Centennial Luncheon. Where uh, are you from? Where did you get that accent? Well, I was born in Virginia. But uh, Arizona and Tucson has been my home since 1966. What brought you out here? I had promised my sister when we came out in 1937 I promised her whoever was free would have uh, would come back out here and make a home because we fell in love with Tucson and it's just been glorious. Well, that's nice to hear. It's been my health do to people, be here. Do people want to know what your secret is? My secret is Jesus Christ. He is oh, everything to me. I read his word and believe his word and live by it. And if they will do the same, they'll always be joyful and they'll always love their neighbor as themselves. If you could give yourself advice, if you could say something to young Geneva about her, your life coming up, what might you say? I would say to find a church that preaches the word and get baptized with the Holy Spirit, that they'll never have to worry about anything the rest of their lives. And hard work is not worrisome. It's good for you. It's good exercise. And it's good brain knowledge. 
Well, that's what I would say. That's that's a happy message, Geneva. It, it sure is. <laughs> I'm a happy camper. <laughs> we just heard from Cecilia Schlevy, Janet Schlesinger, Curtis Spencer Bieland, and Geneva Patterson. They attended the Pima Council on Aging's 28th Annual Salute to Centenarians. You can see photos online at azpm.org. Most Americans know at least one person who is gay or lesbian, but surveys say that less than 10% of the population is familiar with someone who is transgender, a person who does not identify with his or her gender at birth. In Tucson, the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance, or SAGA, is trying to raise awareness about issues that affect the transgender community. Tony Paniagua has an interview with two of SAGA's members. Michael Woodward, treasurer and member of the board of directors of Saga and Abby Jensen, vice president and member of the board of directors, also an attorney. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. First of all, for people who have not heard what Saga is all about, what does it stand for and what does it mean? So Saga is the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance. Um, we were founded back in 1998 and um, we are here as to support and uh, provide services for the transgender community and anybody who's um, an ally to the community or identifies anywhere in the non-binary spectrum of, of gender identity that's out there. Um, we do uh, support groups for those individuals as well as their families and friends. Um, we also do um, education. So we do a lot of speaking on campus, educating employers, healthcare providers, anybody that needs to know about, well, everybody needs to know about, but people that it's critical that they know about um, LGBT issues and trans issues especially. Um, and then we also do some um, advocacy around policy, um, working with various government entities, um, trying to make sure that policies are friendly to trans people. Transgender itself can be kind of used as an umbrella term to describe a whole bunch of different kinds of folks. One of the big misunderstandings is that every transgender person goes through a, some sort of transition, a physical transition involving hormones and surgeries and all that stuff, which really is not true. I mean, only a small percentage of trans people um, even actually use the word trans to describe themselves. Um, so it's really hard to define, actually, but it's Basically, it's somebody who um, doesn't feel connected to the sex that they were assigned at birth for one reason or another or in one way or another. Some people, it's more extreme than others. Um, and the folks that um, really do identify with and want to live full time as something other than the gender they were assigned or the sex they were assigned at birth, um, they'll tend to go through a, some sort of transition. All right. So, Abby, let's hear about your story. What was your story as far as uh, transgender? Well... I mean, I could look back at my childhood and remember moments of wishing that I was a girl, which was really confusing to me because I had no idea why I would want that. It just didn't make sense to me at all. And so, as a lot of trans people do, just, you know, pushed it down because obviously that was a bad thing that, you know, there's a lot of shame around that. And mostly coming from society towards gay and lesbian people and trans people get treated the same way, basically. So I started cross-dressing in my teens. You know, eventually I went to law school and I got married and I had kids. And I reached a point in time where I just reconciled myself to the fact that I was going to have to live the rest of my life as a man, you know, and make the best of it. And so I didn't spend 
you know, the next 20 plus years uh, trying to figure out how to transition. And but my life blew apart, my job, my marriage and everything. And I ended up on a spiritual journey to find out, you know, how to be happy because nobody ever taught me how to do that. And that led me to the recognition that what I needed was to be me, whoever that was. And that led to the realization that that I am a woman, that I am much more authentic, much more comfortable, much happier in the world living as a woman. Let me ask you about the recent interview with Bruce Jenner, the 1976 Olympic gold medalist, who is coming out uh, basically telling the same story, feels much better as a woman. What was your reaction to that? Do you think it's a good thing that this is being discussed much more openly, and are the media still making mistakes when trying to tackle this issue? The trans community all over the country were, were really worried about the Bruce Jenner interview and, and how much it would be played for sensationalism. And we were all really relieved that it wasn't that Bruce obviously had learned a lot about the issues that face the trans community and concerns, and he didn't try to promote himself as a spokesperson for the trans community. He just told his own personal story. So and the way that 2020 ABC uh, treated it, Diane Sawyer was was very respectful, very factual. So it turned out to be a really positive thing, and and it has caused a really heightened awareness of trans people, not as freaks and weirdos, but as just people in our community who are struggling with a difficult issue and. Because of that issue, they suffer a lot of harassment and discrimination and violence. I was about to ask you about that because you are an attorney, and one of the things you deal with is access to ID documents. There's a lot of challenges. Let's just talk specifically about one of the challenges that transgender people face. Right. The, the, the access to identification documents, driver's licenses and Social Security records, passports, uh, all of those sorts of things um, that actually reflect who we are, both our names and our gender, is is really important because trying to live life presenting as a woman but having a driver's license that has a M on it and and a, a guy's name is really stressful uh, and can lead to harassment and and violence and so enabling the trans community to know how it is to you know what do they have to do to get a court order to change their name and what are the rules for getting your driver's license changed and things like that and that's one of the things that Saga does we have forms we have instructions on our website for people to be able to. Uh, navigate that stuff on their own, and we're hoping to set up a name change clinic with the law school to uh, provide assistance from you know periodically to to trans people who would like some support in in taking care of those things. All right, Michael, and what about uh, the people who have never met somebody who's transgender and feel uneasy about approaching somebody in that situation? What would you recommend to him or her? First of all, we're just folks. We're people. Um, I'm just trying to figure out my life just like everybody else, you know, and it's taken me a long time to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, for example. But I had to like, I had to transition to really figure that out so I could live authentically and really get to know myself because I didn't know what was really going on with me. So I, I think just, you know, remembering that the people are people and everybody deals with issues. Just like, you know, like Abby said, it's just one issue that leads to a lot of other stuff. 
but because people don't understand it, that's where the problem is. So people, it, it would really help us if people could educate themselves, come to a saga meeting or watch a documentary or, um, you know, read on the internet um, at a reliable sources <laughs> about, about well, you know, what trans is about. Um, or there's some really good books out there too. All right. Abby Jensen and Michael Woodward, both members of Saga, the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Tony. Saga is holding a free party to celebrate its new life as an independent nonprofit organization, and the public is invited. The event is Saturday from 7 to 11 p.m. at Flux Studios, just east of the 4th Avenue underpass in Tucson. More information is on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The true cinematic experience can be such a feast for the eyes, it's easy to overlook what it offers to the ears. The role of music in the movies has changed often in the century that has passed since they first combined. Next, film writer Chris DeShiel offers his opinion on what three great film scores were able to contribute to their respective films. Film composers, with few exceptions, don't usually become well-known outside of the world of movie fandom. But their contributions have been indispensable to the art of cinema. Even in the silent era, the studios would commission scores for their best pictures, and history's most popular films are often associated with their signature music. With modernism replacing the romantic style in classical music of the 20th century, the more traditional composers took refuge in the movies. And it's safe to say that more people by far have heard orchestral music in movie theaters than in concert halls. Among my favorite film scores, I will highlight three that demonstrate the memorable effects that music can have on a movie. All three come from great pictures with other strengths besides the music, but yet were undeniably enhanced by the contribution of the composer. The first is by Bernard Herrmann, widely considered the greatest film composer of all time. His work spanned 35 years, from Citizen Kane to Taxi Driver, but he's most famous for his work with Alfred Hitchcock. He scored seven films for Hitch. I could easily choose North by Northwest or Psycho, but even better than these, in my view, was Herrmann's work on Hitchcock's most personal and most unusual film, Vertigo. Vertigo flopped on its release in 1958, but has since become Hitchcock's most critically favored work. Unlike other Hitchcock films, its pace is slow. It creeps up on you gradually, with little use of the director's normal, sudden surprise effects. Herrmann's music is scary and disturbing in a deeper way than the more obviously exciting violin effects in Psycho, for instance. There are tragically romantic undertones that mirror the state of mind, bordering on madness, of the film's main character, a detective played by James Stewart, in love with someone claiming that she's possessed by the spirit of a woman who committed suicide. Some of the credit for the spooky and dread-inducing atmosphere of this film has to go to the music, which in my opinion is Herrmann's best. My next choice is by Maurice Jarre, 
a French composer who got a big break when he did the score for Sundays in Sibylle, an unexpected hit that won the Foreign Film Oscar. The director of that film happened to be friends with the English director David Lean, who was looking for someone to score his epic Lawrence of Arabia. Lean took a chance, and the result was one of the most iconic scores in film history. This film, with its intriguing and ambivalent take on the story of T.E. Lawrence, played by Peter O'Toole, has a stunning visual impact with its gorgeous Panavision widescreen photography, still arguably the best use of widescreen ever. But one also can't imagine Lawrence of Arabia without the poetry of Jarre's unforgettable theme. And finally, a quieter film from the same year, 1962, also great, but with a musical score that is perhaps a bit underrated, so seamlessly does it fit the movie. I'm speaking of To Kill a Mockingbird, directed by Robert Mulligan from the Harper Lee novel, and with music by Elmer Bernstein. Bernstein was a protege of Aaron Copland, He's better known for the theme from The Magnificent Seven, admittedly a tune that you can't get out of your head, and he would go on to do The Great Escape and dozens more. The music he did for this film, however, moves me deeply whenever I hear it. The story, told from a child's point of view, evokes the first awareness of ugly social realities by innocent kids, and the main theme suggests a sense of mystery and loss, sadness and nostalgia. It's American music at its finest. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. At a recent gathering called the Arizona History Convention, historians presented their latest research, compared notes, and shared their favorite stories with an audience of enthusiasts. Among the speakers was Bob Bowes Bell, a historian, artist, and writer who lives in Cave Creek, where he produces and publishes True West magazine. Bell came to the convention to talk about the legend of arguably the most famous lawman of the Old West, Wyatt Earp. Someone asked me if, uh, at the session, after it was over, they asked me if Buffalo Bill Cody and Wyatt Earp were, they were contemporaries. Did they know each other and did they hang out like Michael Jordan and Larry Bird? You know, I mean, that you think of it that way. Right. And that was a great question because, no, they did not because uh, Buffalo Bill... Jesse James, Billy the Kid, those names are in the pantheon. Those are names that are uh, known worldwide. Think about this. Hitler had a Billy the Kid movie in his library. I mean, that's how big the Billy the Kid story is. Mm-hmm. Wyatt Earp was not on that level. He was infamous. He was he left Arizona, a wanted man. He uh, was wanted for murder here. He was known as the bad man from Arizona. He was notorious, but he was not world famous. After his death... There were movies uh, coming out that glorified gangsters, Public Enemy Number 1, and we just had lived through the 20s in this horrible crime wave of prohibition. 
And so Hollywood started turning out these gangster movies. Well, the Hayes Code, if you know anything about Hollywood history, they were the moral uh, decider on uh, what was appropriate in American film. And they went to the Hollywood moguls and they said, uh, we don't want you filming these uh, glorifying gangsters. And Hollywood said, okay, we'll put it in a Western. And once they made that, they were ducking the real question. Now all of a sudden they gunfight, okay, corral makes sense. Because you have two gangs meeting each other in a side yard behind Fly's boarding house and the O.K. Corral. And so in the 30s now, after his death, he died in 29, the films start coming. And Frontier Marshall's film, Law and Order, Ronald Reagan plays Wyatt Earp, you know. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. You know, Henry Fonda plays him in uh, uh, My Darling Clementine. And by the 1950s now, he is a household name, and he's probably the most famous lawman in American history. And for him to have come that far is just truly amazing. It would be like somebody today. Um, it would be like Joe Arpaio's lieutenant becoming famous in 50 years from now. That's what it would be like. And people would be interviewed and say, what was it like being in Arizona when Joe Arpaio's lieutenant cleaned up the state? And you're going, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> you know, And that's what it would be like. That's how people in Arizona felt when Wyatt Earp started to become famous in the 30s, way after all the events. When you're exploring the history of a guy like Wyatt Earp and you've got some documents, you've got some biographies, you've got some, maybe some photographs and such, how does that all come together for you? In what way, and I know that you're also a visual artist, which our audience should, should know, how do you visualize that history? Well, that's what got me into it is I wanted to see it, and I wanted to see it accurately, authentically. I was raised on the TV show uh, Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, and I uh, was very upset because my grandmother pointed at the TV and said, "That's you know, that's Wyatt Earp was the biggest jerk who ever walked the West, and here was Hugh O'Brien who cleaned up every cow town and never swore, and he was a bachelor, and he drank milk, and he had that pistol that went all the way to the ground. And uh, I thought, wow, somebody's not telling the truth here. So I set out just for my own uh, satisfaction to go, I want to know the truth, okay? So that's how I started to uh, approach this obsessively. And what I discovered was I thought that if you got past all the layers, if you got past the baloney and got past the movies and you got past all the ridiculousness, that you'd get down to bedrock, that history would be this granite that's there at the core. And nothing is further from the truth. It's more like jello, and you're trying to put it on the wall, and it falls down. And I ultimately decided, and this was only like uh, two years ago, I went, you know what? Nothing changes more than the past. Because what we believed about Wyatt Earp in the 1960s, we no longer believe. We, at one time, not that long ago, thought that Billy the Kid was left-handed. And the that, left -handed led, that led, led to the left-handed gun with Paul Newman. But in reality, a woman probably was looking at the tintype of him and said, you know, his buttons on his vest are on the wrong side. And they went, oh, that's right. It's a tintype. It's a reversed image. Oh, that thing about him being left-handed? Oh, okay. Maybe that's not true. <laughs> so now his gun's on his right side. And so scratch the movie. Scratch all those juvenile delinquency theories that being left-handed was somehow a demon seed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> fed, in, fed into his feeling. Of not but that's in. how much history changes. Okay. Listen next week for more of my conversation with historian Bob Bowes-Bell about the legends and lore of the Southwest. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. 
You can find our podcasts by searching Arizona Spotlight on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. Production assistance by Caitlin Dean. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.